Hola muchachos y muchachas. Yo quiero saludar nuestros hermanos y hermanas en España viviendo la vida en misión. Now I am not running for president. But I did want to greet our brothers and sisters on the mission trip in Spain who might very well be watching us this morning on Facebook Live. I know that when I'm not able to come, it's a, a great blessing for me to, to keep following our services with that vehicle. I love Central Baptist Church. Uh, my family uh, moved back to the United States in September 2010. It was on a Thursday. And that Sunday was the first time I ever went to Central And I'm going to tell you a story, and it's a little bit embarrassing, which is why I'm sure you're going to be paying attention now. <laughs> um, you have to realize that I grew up on the East Coast. I'm a native Marylander, lived my life up to 1992 on the East Coast, uh, lived in Texas for about a year and a half, got married to my wife, Elaine, and then we moved to, to Riga, Latvia in January of 1994 and lived there until came back uh, in September of 2010 here in Round Rock. And in the East Coast and in Europe, all over, there, there are just old buildings. And on so many of these buildings, they have the date when they were built, or if there's an organization that inhabits that building, the date when that organization was founded. And so with that in mind, I, I come to Central Baptist Church. We go sit in the sanctuary here, the worship center, And I look around, and I see the logo for Round Rock Christian Academy. And I go, oh, this is the home of Round Rock Christian Academy. And then I see that Round Rock Christian Academy was, was founded in 1234. And I'm thinking, my first thought was, wow, that must make Round Rock Christian Academy one of the oldest schools in America, not realizing that America was founded in 1492. Um, I'm going, if you look behind you, you can see my mistake. I don't know how you can see with the lights, but... It was the lights on the scoreboard in your first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter. So I thought Round Rock Christian Academy was founded in, in 1234, which, which makes Central Baptist Church a very historic church. <laughs> I, I live life by the motto that he who is easily pleased is frequently pleased. And because I am so easily pleased, I go through life as a very, very happy man. In fact, I am so happy that a lot of times you might think a person as happy as me must be quite simple. I take a little offense to that. I don't like to think of myself as, as overly simple. I like to think of myself rather as not unnecessarily complex. One of the things that has gotten my family and myself really excited this summer, and actually it's been one of the high points of our summer, was two weeks ago we got a chance to see Toy Story 4. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have seen Toy Story 4. Our family loves Toy Story, and it has played a huge role in, in our parenting. When Christopher was young, and our son is now 21 years old, but when he was young and we lived overseas, Uh, we didn't have mobile devices where we could show him videos or things to keep him occupied when we had long waits at airports or if we had a long drive either in America or in Europe. We had to keep him entertained the old-fashioned way, telling stories. And one of the primary stories we told was Toy Story. And it was somewhat like a, a Toy Story catechism. And it went something like this. 
Once upon a time, there was a little boy named Charlie. And Christopher goes, no, Daddy, no, his name was Andy. He goes, oh, yeah. And Andy, oh, poor Andy, he didn't have very many toys. No, Daddy, Andy had a lot of toys. And Andy's favorite toy was Mr. Potato Head. No, Daddy, his favorite toy was, was Woody. And we go on in that vein until we got to the part in the movie, and I hope I'm not spoiling it for anybody, but we got to the part in the movie where Andy and his mom leave the gas station and Buzz and Woody are lost toys. And then I would ask Christopher, I'd say, Christopher, which one of these toys is in the worst situation? And he'd go, well, Buzz is in the worst situation because he doesn't even know he's lost. I go, you're right. And I go, and is Buzz really a space ranger? And he'd go, no, Buzz is a toy. And I go, yeah. And is and is his job really to save the universe from the evil Emperor Zerg? And he goes, no, his job is to please Andy. And I go, you're right. And I said, you know what, son? I said there are a lot of Christians who are an awful lot like Buzz. They think that they are doctors or taxi drivers. And that their job in life is maybe to make money or to drive people around town. But really, they're children of God. And their job is to please God. Now, I don't know how much of that spiritual truth my five-year-old son got. But if you understand those two things, that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, that you are a children of God, if you got that point, And if you understand that as a child of God, my job, my mission is to love God and to serve others by doing good works and telling good words, those are the two main points of today's sermon. So in conclusion, (laughs) no, one time I was preaching in East Texas, and and Christopher right at the start, he goes, Dad, Dad, why don't you try a five-minute sermon? I said, son, I can't do a five-minute sermon. He goes, why not? I said, if I do a five-minute sermon, they'll immediately make me senior pastor. (laughs) So we don't want to do that. (laughs) No. All of us, all of us are a unique combination of a variety of identities. Some some identities we inherit, like our nationality, our ethnicity, our, our gender. Some identities we achieve, like our education, like our profession, like our job title. Some identities we obtain on the basis of belonging, like what school we went to or who hires us or what sports teams do we root for, what church we belong to, what political party we support. All of those are identities of belonging. Now, if you're... You know, if you remember my conversation with Christopher, and it wasn't that long ago when I told you, um, you'll remember that I said Christians have the identity of being children of God. That's what the New Testament tells us, and we find that in 1 John 3, 1. John writes, See what great love the, the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Now, for Paul, he said that identity of being a child of God and the relationship with Jesus that comes with it, that is a primary identity. That supersedes the identities of inheritance and the identities of achievement. We find this in Galatians 3.28 when Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
nor Latino, nor, nor European, nor Asian, nor African. There's neither slave, nor free man, nor hygienist, nor dentist, nor sales manager, nor, nor cashier, nor uh, principal, nor teacher's aide. There's neither male nor female, because we're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, for Paul, this isn't just theory. Paul then applied it to his own life and, his, and the way he evaluated his own resume. He writes in Philippians 3, 4 to 8, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ. So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying that even though I have superior sources of significance, even though I have amazing icons of identity, I mean, after all, I've got the right ethnicity. I was born in the right nation. I had the right family. I had the right job. I had the right education. I even had the right temperament. I've got it all. But it's rubbish compared to how great it is to be a child of God and knowing Jesus. Are you proud to be an American? Amen. It's the high fourth weekend. I think we all are. But as great as it is to be an American, that identity is rubbish compared to how even greater it is to be a child of God. Are you proud of your education? Are you proud of your job? Are you proud of your house? Are you proud of your car? Are you proud of any possession you might have? Again, no matter how great it is, and I'm sure a lot of those things really are great for you, they really are rubbish compared to how great it is to be a child of God and knowing Jesus. Why don't we more fully appreciate this? Why don't we more fully appreciate our status, our identity as children of God? Well, I think here in America, it's because we live in a, a tolerant, pluralistic, multicultural age that kind of says everybody is a child of God. Therefore, it's no special thing for we Christians to say we're children of God. Culturally, that's what they say, but scripturally, it's not the truth. According to the Bible, all of us are created in God's image, and that makes every single person of immense value and dignity. But we are not all children of God. We become a child of God at a point in time. And there is an enormous difference between a creation, being a creation of God, and being a child of God. And we'll uh, use the story of Pinocchio to illustrate this difference. Now, in the story of Pinocchio, if you remember, Pinocchio is created by Geppetto. He's a wooden puppet. He's got no strings after he gets them cut. But he's just wood, just like many other toys that Geppetto has created. And Pinocchio gets an amazing offer. The offer is this. If you prove yourself worthy, you, Pinocchio can become a child of Geppetto. You can have a transition from being a creation of Geppetto 
to being a child of Geppetto. And by the end of the story, Pinocchio does prove himself worthy, and he becomes a child of Geppetto. And that's 100% scripturally accurate. It is. You can become a child of God when you are worthy of becoming a child of God. Now, lest you stone me, how do you become worthy of becoming a child of God? Aye, there's the rub. There's only one person who's ever been worthy of being a child of God, and that person is Jesus. The Son of God is the only one worthy of being a child of God. And what Jesus did on the cross is he makes us an offer. He says, listen, I am worthy, you are not. I am offering to you, to anyone who wants to be a child of God, my worthiness. I will give you my worthiness. And then you too can become children of God. John 1.12 describes it this way. Yet to all who did receive him, to all who realized they weren't worthy, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, in Scripture, they don't use the term worthiness so much. They use the term righteousness. But when we became a Christian, we received Jesus' righteousness. We received his worthiness. And so now that we are worthy, we are children of God. We've seen transformation. Just like Pinocchio went from a wooden heart to a heart of flesh, our heart of stone became a heart of flesh. God's spirit now lives inside of us. And that makes all the difference in the world. We are child of God, children of God. And that's unique, and that's really, really special. Friends, it's by far and away the best identity that we could have. And here's what's really kind of amazing, too. With that identity of being a child of God, being children of God, we get some incredibly cool descriptions that are add-ons, we might say. We are um, part of a holy nation. We're part of a royal priesthood. We are ambassadors of Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are co-laborers of God. We are ministers of reconciliation. We are salt and light. We are difference makers. That's all part of our identity. Wow. Wow. No wonder any of those other identities are rubbish. But what grieves my heart is that even though we've got all of that, we still try to grab on to lesser identities. And we waste so much time and emotional energy trying to get identities that, that aren't this good. Identities that we'll probably lose in the first place. You know? Who has the best job? Who has the best house? Who has the best reputation? Who has the best-looking spouse? I've known many rich people who've lost it all, became poor. I've known beautiful people who, through age or accident, lost their looks. I've, lost people, I've known people with positions of power who lost an election or, or got fired and their power was gone with the wind. I've known people who've won honors and awards that ultimately, years down the road, people just don't care about the honors and awards that you won way back when. Steve McMichael is an all-time great Longhorn football player, and his experience is not uncommon for those who've based their significance and identity on things that couldn't last. I pulled this quote from him. I could have pulled it from hundreds of others. But this is what Steve had to say. 
My whole existence was about walking out of that tunnel and hearing the roar of the crowd. That's what you miss, mattering to that throng. That's when you're really alive. And do you ever get that back, or do you ever get back to that point once it's gone? I haven't. I haven't. Why is our primary identity so important? Well, from our identity flows our life mission and life purpose. If your identity is as a Marine, your mission is to to advance the interests of your country, to win battles, to win wars. If you're if you're a, a work for Apple, if you're an Apple employee, if that's your identity, then your mission is to make really cool overpriced um, <laughs> overpriced implements and to meet sales goals. That's your that's your mission. If your identity is as an athlete, then if that's your identity, then your mission is to to perform well, to to win games, to win championships. But what is the mission and purpose of a child of God? Well, the first duty of any child is to love their parents. It's not to take out the trash. It's not to wash the dishes. It's not to mow the yard. Our first duty is to love our parents. And that's the same as a child of God. Our first duty is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our spirit, all of our mind. And the second is like it. It's to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus really modeled for us the best ways for us to love our neighbor. The first is through service, through doing good works. Jesus said in Mark 10:45 that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If that was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. And Paul then in Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, what are these good works? Do they include what we do here at church? Maybe doing VBS or taking care of the children during worship or, or being part of the praise band or helping out with the soundboard, teaching in ABF? Yes. How about some of the, the nonprofit stuff we do? Maybe reading to the kids at Blue Bonnet or, or helping out at the serving center or the pregnancy center, praying an unceasing prayer. Is that a good work that counts? Yes. Those, I think, are the obvious ones. But I think it also includes something that's not quite so obvious. And that is, I believe this also includes our job. Now, when Christopher was 15 years old, he and I began a conversation about careers and what a career he might pursue. And I said, son, at the heart of every job, at the heart of every career, there's a problem that you have to solve for people. Now, the problem has to be a little bit difficult or a little bit unpleasant or else people would just do it themselves. So you've got to figure out in life, what problem do you want to solve? Now, the idea that at the root of our jobs are problems that we have to solve for people creates an opportunity for we as Christians. We get to love people through our jobs by helping them solve important problems. Maybe that problem is educating their kids. Maybe that problem is building, selling, or fixing something that's, that's they really need. Maybe it's uh, keeping them safe or getting them healthy or, or entertaining them. 
but at the root of all jobs are a problem that needs to be solved, and we can love them by helping them solve that problem. Now, often when a serviceman comes to my house, and unfortunately it's often because I had no do-it-yourself skills, I will say something like, Thank you very much for ministering to me today by helping me solve this important problem that I had. It must make you feel really good to have the knowledge and skills that allow you to be such a blessing to people. And I mean that with all my heart. And this tends to make service people really happy to be at my house. That plus I pay them. But usually if I say something like that, then usually we'll have a few extra minutes where we can talk some more. And in that time, then hopefully I can share with them a little spiritual nugget that will help nudge them a little bit closer to Jesus. Now, why would I want to do that? Because that's the second way that we love people. We do good works and we share good words. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, I came to seek and save the lost. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 and 18, Paul writes, All of us who have been reconciled to God have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Of all the problems that a person might have, there is no problem they have that's bigger than their separation from God. And there's no more loving thing that I can do for them than to help bring about a reconciliation, to help them draw closer and closer to God through Jesus Christ. And when you look at it, that's our job. That's our mission. And not only do we have the best identity, we really have the best mission. I mean, if your mission is to win football games and you win the Super Bowl, well, the next day you've got to start all over again. And that's why Dwayne Thomas, running back, former running back for the Cowboys, once said, if the Super Bowl is the ultimate game, how come there's another one next year? If your mission was to meet a sales goal for Apple and you meet it, well, next quarter you got another goal. And I think Jesus was getting at that when he talks to the woman at the well in John 4. He commends her for working hard, getting water for herself and her family. But he notes in verses 13 and 14, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of, of water springing to, up to eternal life. Quenching a person's physical thirst is important. It's commendable. All of our jobs are important and commendable. But again, there's nothing that's more important than quenching their spiritual thirst by helping them become children of God. That's our mission, and that's our purpose. What do you call somebody that's got a spiritual mission? What was that? A missionary, yeah. How many missionaries does Central send every year? Every one of us. You're right. When we leave our parking lot, what's that sign say? You are now entering the mission field. Those who enter the mission field are missionaries. That's why I never identify myself in a situation like this as a missionary, because if I do that, then you start thinking there's something true about me that's not true about you. From my point of view, we are all missionaries. The only question is who writes our our paycheck and where might we live and where might we work. But we are all 
missionaries if we are believers. That is part of our identity. We're children of God. We're missionaries. Life can be pretty exciting when you live it on mission. The ordinary can become extraordinary when we live life on mission. It can, t- it can take a, a service call and make it a great adventure as you're helping somebody figure out where they are on their spiritual journey. And it can turn a trip to the restaurant. Going to the restaurant can turn into a, a mission trip. Recently, Elaine and I went to Red Lobster because we were cashing in on a, on a free certificate for a dessert. And so we were talking to our waitress. She was a very friendly lady. And we found out that she'd only been in Round Rock for a week. So I asked her, I said, are you looking for a church home, a community of faith that you can be part of? And she said she was. So I asked her what she was looking for, and I was able to direct her to some options that would be really well suited for her. She said thank you, and she walked away. And then she doubled back and said, i got to tell you this. My father, my daddy, is a pastor, and he's been praying for me because he's really nervous about this move. You know, I'm from Kansas, and now I'm in, in the Austin area, and daddy's been praying that I might find a good church. You're an answer to my daddy's prayers. Elaine and I got so excited because we know exactly those prayers. They're the same prayers we prayed when our son Christopher went off to UT Tyler. Are your children far away from home? Who's going to be the answer to your prayers? What person living on mission will take initiative with your child to help them find a community of faith, to maybe help them grow in their relationship with Christ because you're not going to be there? And whose child will you be that answer to prayer? Because their daddy and mommy aren't anywhere close, but they're here where we are. The ordinary can become extraordinary when we live life on mission. Now, up to now, I've been focusing on one type of problem that Christians might have, and that is those of us who don't fully embrace our identity as children of God, as great as that identity is, because we're pursuing good but lesser identities. But there's another type of problem that maybe other Christians have, too, and that is we don't embrace our identity in Christ, that great identity, but rather we've embraced a really self-destructive, self-defeating identity, a very bad identity. And to illustrate that, I turn to another um, animated movie, The Lion King. Incidentally, this talk is sponsored by the Walt Disney Corporation. Who wants you to know that Lion King will be at a theater near you on July 19th? (laughs) And I don't want to provide too many spoilers for the one person in this room who hasn't seen it. But in The Lion King, Mufasa is the Lion King. And Mufasa has a charming, ambitious young son named Simba. And Simba fully embraces his identity as child of the king. And in fact... Little Simba can't wait to be king. But something happens in the pride. Someone dies, and and, uh, and Simba mistakenly believes that he is the murderer. And so he rejects his identity as child of the king. And he embraces the self-defeating, self-destructive identity of murder 
and he leaves his community. He leaves his responsibilities to the community, and he goes off by himself into the wilderness. And I think there's an awful lot of folks who are a lot like Simba. They say, you know, I can't be used by God. I'm trash. I belong in the trash can because because I failed. I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I mean, I'm addicted. I've had addictions in my life. I've made a lot of bad choices. I screw up relationships. Every relationship, serious relationship I've ever had has gone badly. You know, I, I have trouble getting a job or holding on to a job. God can't use me. God can't use me. The turning point in the Lion King came when move when uh, what's the monkey's name? Riki, Rafiki. That's it. Rafiki. I had a little. Yeah, I'm getting old. <laughs> Rafiki, who's kind of like the pastor, the minister of of that pride, that that jungle. Uh, he comes and he finds adult Simba. And he brings Simba to the watering hole. And adult Simba looks into the water. And he sees his reflection, but hears the voice of his father. He hears the voice of Mufasa. And Mufasa says to him, he says, You have forgotten who you are. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you become. You must take your place in the circle of life. Remember who you are. You are my son, Luke, and the one true king. (laughs) I sometimes get my Mufasa impersonation and my Darth Vader impersonation mixed up. (laughs) Matthew West wrote a song that speaks to all of us who believe that we are defined by our failures. And perhaps you're familiar with it. It plays a lot on Christian radio. It's called Hello, My Name Is. And I'd like to uh, recite those lyrics for you. Hello, my name is Regret. I'm pretty sure we have met. Every single day of your life, I'm the whisper inside that won't let you forget. Hello, my name is Defeat. I know you recognize me. Just when you think you can win, I'll drag you back down again till you've lost all belief. Oh, these are the voices. Oh, these are the lies. And I have believed them for the very last time. Hello, my name is child of the one true king. I've been saved. I've been changed. I've been set free. Amazing grace is the song I sing. Hello, my name is child of the one true king. I'm no longer defined by all the wreckage behind. The one who makes all things new has proven it's true. Just take a look at my life. What love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called his children. I am a child of the one true king. I want to move towards the end of our time together with a story of a superhero. And it's a real superhero, and her name is PJ. When PJ was 46 years old, she was attacked by lupus. The lupus attacked her eyes, and even though she's had two corneal transplants, she's practically blind. She can't see very well. The lupus attacked her kidneys and put her on dialysis. The lupus and the medications for all that 
so weakened her bones that she had multiple microfractures in her spine, and she's had three different hip replacement surgeries. She can barely walk. Her medications left her um, blood pressure and potassium levels so high that one time her doctor had a very honest heart-to-heart -heart with her and said, TJ, you are a walking time bomb. I don't think you have very long to live. And one day that prophecy seemed to come true. PJ was in her bedroom and she was hungry. And the trip from her bedroom to the living room and to the dining room was just too much. And she collapsed on a chair in her living room preparing to die. And as she prepared to die, she looked out her sliding glass doors and she saw a dog strolling, you know, meandering out in the, in the yard, just sniffing and enjoying the sunshine. And that really hacked PJ. She says, Lord, you're letting that dog live, and I'm dying. Why don't you let me live too, and I can tell others about Jesus? And miraculously, PJ started getting better. In fact, she would visit her doctor, and her doctor had to confess, all I can say is that I'm not doing this. There's a power much greater than I am that, that's restoring you to health. By the time PJ was 52, she was healthy enough that she could start going overseas on some short-term trips. By the time PJ was 56, she joined our team in Latvia. And you can see her with, with my team. PJ did great in Latvia. And as she got to know the, the Latvian women, she found out that the average woman in Latvia had, at that time, six abortions in their life because that was a primary form of birth control. And the post-traumatic stress, the abortions, were just killing these women. And so she wanted to start a ministry that would deal with the post-traumatic stress issues of the Latvian women. So she left our organization in 2000 and founded an organization called Precious Life Ministries. And they've done amazing things in Latvia. But one of the things they did was they started the first Christian Crisis Pregnancy Center in Latvia. Last September, I was on a mission trip to Latvia with Jim Rowan, and we were trying to set up, uh, do the legwork to start setting up uh, partnerships between Round Rock churches and Latvian church planners. And who do I see on the streets of Riga but my friend PJ, now 77 years old? She's amazing. She's amazing. But what, you know, I want to go back to a scripture, 1 Timothy 4.12. Paul writes to his young disciple, and he says, Timothy, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. We could easily come up with excuses for why God can't use us. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too sick. I'm not educated enough. I didn't have the right parents. You know, I don't have the right temperament. I'm shy. <laughs> There's so many reasons we can say, I'm trash. You know, I just can't be used by God. But God has a plan for each one of us. God wants us to live on mission. Uh, you know, as the band comes up, I, I want to share a thought from Toy Story. When uh, we looked at Toy Story, at least the first movie, Andy didn't 
love his toys because they went on great adventures with him. He took his toys on great adventures because he already loved them. That is what our Christian life is to be like. God already loves you, and because he loves you, he wants to go on adventures with you. We are not on missions from God. We are on missions with God. God is with us every day. And if your Christian life is boring, I think you're like the person that that goes to Six Flags and complains about how boring the park is, but all you did was ride the carousel. You know, if you're only going to ride the carousel, yeah, Six Flags is pretty boring. You got to get on the roller coasters. You got to take some chances. You got to put yourself out there a little bit. And you've got backing. God is with you. God's the one sitting next to you on that roller coaster. He's holding your hand. Our life is meant to be a great adventure, a great adventure that starts the moment we take on Jesus' worthiness and says, yes, I want to be a child of God. It starts then, and it ends only in infinity and beyond. Thank you.